privilege is just uh, also like underrepresented. Like it's kind of turned into negative. Like privilege is a thing that you are. Privilege is a thing that you have. Everybody has some privilege in some way. I mean, it's just a fact. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. It's an honor to have Arlen Hamilton on the show. She's, uh, I mean, she, she's moving fast, uh, though, but she's had a long way to get here, though. It, from the outside looking in, it looks like it's been a, a fast success. But uh, as you're going to hear, it, it, it really hasn't been. It's been it's been a struggle, but she's grown and learned every part of the process. Uh, she is now, she's built a venture capital fund to invest in, and I like the way she says this, underestimated founders. I think sometimes people think of the word, uh, you know, uh, when you think of people, people say uh, underinvested, they think of what are some of the other words, marginalized. Those are terms that people sometimes align with, you know, n- not worthy of investment or. So I like the way you say underestimated because I think that's the right way to say it. Uh, she has her own podcast, Your First Million. Uh, and of course, we're here a lot to talk about her book. It's about damn time because literally it's about damn time. Uh, to have real equity. You know, that's what we talk about on this show, black equity, black and brown equity, equity for everyone. Uh, But we know that's not where we are now. But Arlen Hamilton has been working with her own venture capital fund, Backstage Capital, to change that. And so we're going to learn about her uh, journey, her her struggle and how she how she's gotten to this point. Arlen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, thanks for coming on. You know, I um, as I read into your story, I I read your whole book and I recommend everybody. get the book. It's a great book. You do a great job in, in, uh, narr- in, in telling your personal narrative and how you got here. And you're just extremely, I think, uh, vulnerable, uh, humble about your experience. And I think a lot of people will relate to it if they it, once they read the story like I did. Uh, we have a lot of things in common, just very quickly. Like I think um, you, you, you absorb knowledge the same way I do. Like I I don't, I don't, I have read books. Uh, I've done that before, but I, I love Audible. So I get up and I listen to so much Audible and I take notes. So we have that in common. Also, I know your brother uh, has a learning disability. I do too, ADHD. And, and you'll appreciate the story as I, it'll be one of my first questions. You know, I, uh, one of the reasons, the reason I started Disruption Now is about empowering people to not be stuck in these narratives that people say we have to be stuck in. It's about disrupting those, what I say, common narratives and constructs. Uh, I was told in school I was never going to go to college. I, I was in learning disability classes and those remedial classes for about till about eighth grade. And then I just the light bulb went off. I said, OK, I know I can do more. I want to do more. And my teachers and counselors gave me their motivation of a of a speech. They said, look, Rob, you're you've struggled in school. You're not going to college is not meant for you. And I'm like, OK. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like literally in tears at this moment. Uh, luckily, I have a a strong black woman who was my mother who said, look, you don't have to accept any of that. You define yourself for yourself by yourself. Absolutely. I want to know that. I want to tell you that your story, your brother's story really spoke to me. I didn't have the same level of struggle in terms of economics, but I, I do understand what it's like to be underestimated, to be told you can't do something for someone to put you in this box and how uh, deflating that can be in that moment and how you have to really learn how to reject the narrative and really create your own. So I just want to let, let you know that your book spoke to me in that way. Uh, it really helped me. And so I want you to do what you've done best. You help others. I want you to think about your younger self at whatever point it could be pre backstage capital. It can be, uh, you had a really interesting experience with on the road when you were just getting into uh, really the music scene Whatever advice you want to take, let's get to your younger self at one of your critical, pivotal moments. 
knowing everything you know now, what advice would you give your younger self and what advice would you ignore? Um, I would say ignoring sort of what anyone who, who, including myself, who would say that they, they haven't figured out or they know what my path is going to be or that there is a certain age that you have to, you know, once you get to that age, there's no, there's no, there's no future for you. You know, uh, none of that is, is good, is good advice. Some advice I would take, I would say, um, I would tell my younger self to, um, you know, be better. This is kind of uh, boring, but it's true. So it'd be helpful to people. Okay. Be better at uh, keeping track of the conversations that you have. So your CRM. uh, So like uh, if you, uh, I talk about in the book, like I I reached out to a hundred people when I wanted to get my touring gig, right. And a hundred tour managers and production managers. Uh, And I also did something similar in venture. And so I go into it in the book and you can read about it there, but I needed to have kept better notes of, you know, the first conversations that I had and how I kept up with them. And if I had that today, um, all of that data would be really helpful to me today because it becomes dozens and then maybe hundreds and maybe even more than that. For me, it's thousands of people. And I think you can kind of treat it like, uh, you know, you, you treat your networking a little bit. And I know some people who do this, actually, who are really good at this early on because you don't necessarily know why you may need that certain connection or to know that one person who does this one thing. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to do it too mechanically. You don't want it to make it, you know, such a transactional experience, sure. but it is good to go back and say seven years ago, uh, you know, that, that person I remember kind of ambiguously, that person would be perfect to talk to right now about this yeah. topic. You you did you know you you talked about that a lot in your book and I, I, again I want people to read it and I also want to get into at least some some of what you were saying in your book. I remember you had a um, you had a you had a, a goal that you wanted to meet I believe ten thousand people and have an intentional conversation. Uh, although you didn't keep that data like you wanted to to the level that you would have wanted, I, I would say you're far above most people because you went out yeah. with the goal of getting to know people. Tell people about your process and really yeah. wanting to know. And understand where people are coming from because you you hinted at it, but I want you to get more into it. It wasn't transactional in your approach, yes. but it was it was intentional in your approach, which sometimes led to greater results. Yes. Can you talk so a little about original, that? The original the original idea though was that it would be pretty fast because I knew ten thousand people was a lot of people. So originally, this was probably I would say 12, 15 years ago, something like that, something to that effect. Where it started started, uh, so mid twenties. I had a music magazine and this is before I was able to get it off the ground. And I wanted to, I needed to raise $10,000 in order to launch this magazine. This is what I you know, needed at the time. And so I had originally this idea, if I meet 10,000 people over, let's say three months that I thought I could do this in, I take a picture with each person and I seriously go pretty fast. I just get their name and I put that picture Every night on a website, that picture of them, they go to that website because they have the URL and then I sell a T-shirt. And if I could sell a tenth of that uh, and did all the math, maybe I get that $10,000. So it was a lot of jumping through hoops and, and mental acrobatics. But I thought that would be the case and it would be interesting. First day I go out, which was in Houston, Texas, was the first day I ended up meeting three, 30 people. I was trying to meet 300 people a day. I ended up yeah. meeting 30 people. And the reason I met 30 people is because 
starting with the very first person. I remember clear as day, she was a girl at a coffee shop. The Starting with the very first person who I got the, the nerve to go up and talk to, once I told her what I was doing and, and she wasn't weirded out by it, right? it was a conversation. I got to know her. I got to know, understand her. And then I went to the next place and I said, okay, I, well, I got to go a little bit faster than this. So I'm going to go in a group. I'm going to talk to a group and get them all to kind of do this. Right. Well, don't you know, each person in that group had something to say because we all are individual. We all have something that we want to say. So this 10,000 people, quick vibe in thir- three months turned into, I got to about 500 people in about a two-year period, wow. <laughs> you know, and I still, and I still one day will do it again, especially, yeah. especially when we're, we have COVID in the, in the far rearview mirror. Yeah. So um, I, I am curious to see, uh, you are, you are an introvert. You admit to being an introvert. <clears throat> Yet you have to do a lot of things that are quote unquote extroverted, and you have to step out really in your uh, in a zone that you're not very comfortable with. And I think that's pretty safe to say. Speaking in front of a lot of people, uh, presenting, doing things like this, these are things that people consider quote unquote extroverted type of things. Uh, but you talked about overcoming your insecurity with information. Can you walk people through that? Because I, th- I think there's a lot of people right now that are. Uh, like yourself, right? They're introverted, thinking that, okay, for me to do this, I have to go out there, I have to speak in front of people. That's not what I'm good at. That's not something I can do. Advise those those folks, if you can, about how you go about it. I know it's different for everybody else, for, for, any, for everybody, but I think hearing someone like yourself who is not a person who's, who wants you to just say, naturally, I'm going to get up and speak in front of 10,000 people. That's not your default go-to but yet you've, you've been very successful in doing that. Yeah. So today I, I can do that. Uh, but up until I was 36, up until March of 2017, I was had terrible stage fright. And I mean terrible. One time I was hired, uh, invited and hired to be a host at a, at a, a pride event uh, in Colorado Springs. And I hid behind a tree because I was so scared. <laughs> I was so bad. I, anytime I had anything in school that I had to do public speaking, I would skip that day and say I was sick. I was just terrified. I think 50% of the population is apparently has stage fright. So when I got into what I do now with, with backstage capital and making these investments and being more front facing, I made a decision. I said, you know, I'm going to be quiet. I'm, I'm going to be online. I'll talk online all day, you know, but I'm not going to go out in front of people. And a couple of things happened at the end of 2016 that changed my mind. One thing was that I got, I was given an award and in order to receive the the award in person, there's this big gala. I had to give a five minutes thank you speech and I couldn't do it. So I had to turn down the award and I went to the award benefit to the event with my mother who we, who flew in to California for it just to be my, my, you know, sidekick there. And I had to watch somebody else get the award and I was like, man, that could have been me. And that could have been my mom. So proud. And so that got me thinking. And then um, there I had an opportunity to speak at an event that Richard Branson was going to be speaking at right after me if I was to take it. And I originally said yes, but then I got so nervous I had to cancel it. And I went to that event and I watched as the person who was taking my spot walked off stage to where Richard Branson was. And he had been uh, an entrepreneurial hero of mine since I was 13 years old. So I said, those two things that happened within like a month of each other, I said, look, I got to figure something out if I want to, if I want to go to a next level here, I can't be stuck in this, in this 
cocoon of, you know, and I have to figure it out. So 2017, at the top of the year, I said, I will say yes to three speaking events, big and small, this year. And I will do them no matter what, even if I'm scared. And at the end of it, if it doesn't work out, at least I can say I tried. Right. And maybe it'll work out. So uh, a few things have helped me. Um, and I'll say this as a as to kind of wrap it up to to put a bow on it. Today I've spoken at, at least three hundred events. I have headlined events. I have keynoted events. I've spoken in front of twenty thousand people uh, in person uh, a, a couple of times. And and I don't have that same fear. Um, definitely introverted still. You know, those are right, they may right. be two different things. You know, but I don't have that same fear. And a few things helped. One thing was realizing that it wasn't about me. It was really helpful because once I realized, wait a second, it's not about me and, and, and what if I fail or what if I fall off the stage or say something stupid? Cause that's what I was worried about. Uh, it's about the people who came to see you and the people who may did, maybe didn't come to see you, but are listening and they hear that and they're in the back of the room and they're just taking that in and something clicks for them. Yeah. And because I want that in my life, I was like, I got to do it just for that alone. And then it, you know, the more I did it, the better it was. People talked about that. They said, you know, you just got to try it and then it'll get better. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> so one big thing I will say, one big piece of advice I will say, and, and there's a lot more I go into in the book about it. But one thing I will say is don't let anybody tell you that it's your time to speak if you have stage fright. Don't let anybody force you into doing it because that's not necessarily going to be uh, fruitful. But have a personal conversation, you know, with yourself on your own time in your own space. And start mapping out maybe a plan of this is when I want to try to give it a shot. And what helped me so much is to say, even if like my biggest fears had to break that down where I would say something wrong or stupid and it would be forever there or or the imposter syndrome thing. Yeah. The other thing I thought was, what if I get so scared that I can't speak? And so I'm on this stage and I can't speak and it's just dead air and I have to leave. And I, so what I did was I said, that can be okay. So the first one you do, you don't do it in front of 20,000 people. You do it in front of 60, like I did. And you say to the host, I may not make it through this conversation because I must have such bad stage fright and and they have a B plan and, and you inch your way towards normality, (laughs) uh, uh, where, where it does feel normal to you. And I, and I promise you at least half of you who feel this way right now, at least half of you will not only be good at it and be able to do it, you will enjoy it and crave it. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, you know, so you had a, you had a, you had a very, uh, diverse background to say the least. Um, so you grew up uh, a Jehovah's Witness, I know, and, and I know that you, you don't uh, believe in a lot of things Jehovah's Witness stand for now, but you grew up that way. And you talked about a little bit being that experience, being LGBT, being a black woman, all those things together see, uh, played a role as an outsider and being underestimated and looked at differently, having to go door to door and having a bunch of people say no. Can you talk about that experience, What that, how that experience of your background in general led to your current success now, because if, if, if you don't know, I'm sure a lot of people do know this, but you were homeless for a, a period of time right before you started Backstage Capital, which is quite amazing. My my guess is your experience, not only as a Jehovah Witness growing up and taking no all the time, being an outsider, but also your experience with the music industry probably prepared you 
for what you needed to to give you that certain yeah, level of preparation. I, I was I would separate the two. Okay, to, separate two for the, me. The, the difference is being a witness. I have very strong opinions about it. Okay, and to me, it's like giving credit to an abuser for making you tougher. Oh, I don't. Right. I think it's a cult, and I think it was yep. very damaging. It did, of course, put me in a situation where I had to hear no a lot. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of so a lot of times people will say, well, wasn't that good that you had to hear no a lot and that built up your your you know defense of that? You probably could argue that, but it did more damage than it did good. Right. So, so there's better to, ways to do that. Got it. Yeah, I try to separate it. But being in the music industry, yeah, let's talk about that. The music industry for sure, and you know you can air all of this. Um, the music industry uh, was great preparation because you get to, you get, especially with work I was doing, I was in the, in the live music touring. So I was on the road with these groups, you know, these people, which is different than going into an office or going into a recording, recording studio. You kind of see the good, the bad, and the ugly. I was surrounded by people with all kinds of personalities, um, all kinds of agendas, all kinds of talents, all kinds of, dreams and 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 faults and all sorts of things that were just like a, a boot camp and doing all of this while on the road while it being you know the job I, it, it was like a boot camp uh uh in learning about human behavior learning how to treat people learning about hierarchy you know a lot of times the artists were the least of my troubles, like the least maintenance there was. Yeah. And it was somebody who just thought that they, the, the whole thing was about them and they could gum up the works. And that was who, you, you know, squeaky wheel. Uh, and then, it, you know, sometimes it wasn't the case. Sometimes it was the artist that, that I needed to think about ego and, and things. So I learned how to just be nimble, how to uh, be adapt to adapt in incredible circumstances and uh, on a dime. And uh, I and I loved and I learned a lot about like just a very exciting, adrenaline filled industry. Yeah, and I, and I think that when people look at your story again, it, it looks like from some folks you want to look from the outside in. Uh, she was homeless for five years ago or so, I believe that's right. And then now you know you're managing a huge, large, multi million dollar fund, and it looks like the path was there in five years. But the truth be told, is certainly that period in the music industry. And even your background growing up, but certainly that period within the music industry taught you a lot of skills that are directly applicable, which is why you call it backstage capital, right? That's but right. it's just directly applicable to who you are. So I, so I tell folks like every experience that you're in, like I was in politics and, and, what, and what I learned is how to keep dialing. I mean, I, you have to do it in a tactful way, but I learned how to keep engaging, figure out how to get around, make a, a no into a yes. And then even if it is a no, figure out whether anything else that can be done with this opportunity. I mean, I remember one time I was working on getting w one person to contribute. I must have called the person 50 times and they never, they never said no. So I called <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally they never called me back, but they wrote me a $12,000 check once. So yep. I'm like, all right. So clearly yep. this works after some time. So you can learn from your experience. And, and, and I, and I believe your experience in, 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 in the industry help prepare you because those, th there are many things transferable politics, understanding people, how to build relationships, how to build how to build something from nothing because you have to do that when you have a tour you have no you don't know who, who's going to come to this tour you got to figure out how to connect with people there I believe all of that taught you so I let I let people know like it is a every every experience in your life can add and help you to the moment that you're getting towards and what I appreciate about your story is that everything you did from starting blogs to everything else helped you prepare for this moment so I think it's important for people to know that. Um, 
You talk about privilege. I want to talk about that a little bit and in a different way that I haven't heard really anybody discuss privilege specifically in this moment where we're discussing obviously white privilege, male privilege, privilege in general. But you describe it as not necessarily in a negative context. Explain that a little bit. Well, privilege is just also like underrepresented, like it's kind of turned into negative. Like privilege is a thing that you are privilege or it's a thing that you have. Everybody has some privilege in some way. I mean, it's just a fact. It's like logical uh, wording. So privilege is not necessarily the bad word in, in most situations. Entitlement is usually the bad word in that situation. So you can be privileged because you're a guy. I can be privileged because I'm not disabled. Uh, we can be privileged because we live in a country where we are able to show our dissent, uh, at least today, without being thrown in jail. Yeah, A lot of things make us give us privilege, even though we are black. Uh, uh, and so when, when someone's talking about like sharing their privilege or being accused of having it, a lot of times white people, white men, et cetera, will get very defensive about it. Like, I don't have, I'm not privileged. You know, I had it tough when I was growing up. Well, yeah, you are privileged because you're a white man. And when you walk down the street and I walk down the street, I'm going to be looked at as someone who may rob you and, and, and you're not necessarily in that situation. So there's, there's different privilege. Now, you can get really defensive as a white person or as a man or as this or that, and you can, you can get upset about it or you can recognize, okay, I do have privilege. Let's use that for our advantage. How do I get more people into this room? How do I do this and that and the other? Another way to take it though, is to say I'm privileged. So I'm going to be entitled about it. I'm owed this. I'm supposed to have this. I'm a white man. I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be in this first class lane. Why is this black woman named Arlen trying to get my first class lane to go across, you know, get on this flight? And that's when entitlement comes in and they push you to the side. And you're going to say, wait a second, you know, because you're a privilege, you've been treated a certain way your whole life. And that has made you entitled. So those are just two things I think it's important to separate. Yeah. You know, I, I never really fully understood the uh, how white people viewed uh, privilege until really, and I'll be very transparent. I'm always transparent is during the Me Too movement because I was like, uh, at, I, I saw some of the. I don't agree now, but I saw some people. They were like, "Well, aren't they making a general, broad kind of stroke against men, and saying man. all men, all men have this?" And I was like, "I'm like that's, that seems a little bit much." And then somebody yeah. said, "Well, what's the difference between that and racism?" I said, "Oh." Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and then I, exactly. then I was like, and I had to get it. I said, I get that. I, I, I mean, really, I don't know why that the, the light bulb clicked. But how do we make that light bulb click for a white man who doesn't have any level of? Uh, they don't have to go through that level of uh, discrimination that I have. So I understand why white men have to, and white people in general have to be anti-racist. It's not enough. I, I tell, I told people during Martin Luther King, as we observe his ninety-two, uh, you know, ninety-second birthday. Dr. King didn't die because he had a dream. He didn't die because he was articulate. He died because he challenged the status quo of white supremacy that made people uncomfortable and making people uncomfortable. Uh, you, you know, a lot of people, some people pivot towards growth and some people pivot towards defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess, how do we get more people to pivot towards growth? I, I don't know if, I have, if you have a good answer to that, but yeah, I with, with, the, with the three minutes we have, I don't know if I have the answer, but I will say that, um, that sometimes, you know, it's, it's not about boiling the ocean. It's not about getting everybody to understand it. Maybe it's just about a, a handful 
or one or two or the people that you, you're involved with. And then that the numbers grow. And one way is in business. That's what I am doing. You know, I'm not spending a ton of time trying to get white men to believe that black people are, are valuable uh, uh, partners and collaborators. I'm going to say it. And, you know, if you want to jump on, I'll, I'll, I'll show you the way, but I I'm, I'm here for us and I'm here for uh, I think, you know, every white man that I've met has somebody that they're jealous of or that they feel inferior to. And so that's one way of doing it is making it on personal. Some, you know, there are people, some people it's about height. Some people it's about wealth. Some people it's about uh, being part of a certain group or the way that you might have been treated as a, as a child or a teenager. You maybe, you know, and if you imagine that, um, like I, I, I I forgot who I was talking to, but it was a white man. And he was saying, you know, I had the same, I live in the same world. I have the same thing I have to worry about. I have to worry about my health. I have to worry about my family and putting food on the table. And I said, yes, but when you go outside and you walk down the street to go find the food for your table, you don't also have to worry about getting shot by a police officer. You don't also have to worry about this white woman thinking that you're trying to steal her purse because you walked on a certain side of the street and you don't have to worry about X, Y, Z. And now today with COVID and everything else, you're also not to worry about the doctor not treating you and your symptoms uh, seriously because you are black. And so that really lights up. So I think uh, like most white people that I know, when you talk to them logically, they and you give them that kind of breakdown, they 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 get it. Yeah, they just hadn't been presented with it because they didn't have a reason to be presented with it. It's like when I learned about any other culture or anything. And I'm like, man, I'm 40 years old and I didn't know that this was this type of utensil was used to make that kind of food. I just feel kind of, you know, you can, you kind of feel kind of embarrassed and a little dumb about the situation. So you get a little guarded. Yeah. But then I'm like, hey, it's OK that I didn't know that. I'm not supposed to know everything. So it's OK. And, and it's up to me to do better next time. And that's how I think a lot of white people and men and a lot of a lot of, you know, all of us yeah. can do better is to say instead of getting defensive, let's think about it's okay for us to be wrong. Can we get right? Oh, that's great. One final question before you leave us, uh, Arlen. Uh, if you had a billboard, Google ad that summarized your beliefs of what you stand for, what would that say and why? Ooh. Uh, I have to get one rapid fire question in that I love to have you back yeah, on. We'll get some other that's a, that's a tough one too. I, I, I have, I have plenty of tough ones. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll go to those next time. I would say, something along the lines of, I'm just saying this for the first time, like pay it for it and spend it now, you know, kind of like do it while we're here. Pay it forward, spend it now. I love it. Yeah. That's great. Hey, that's a great one. Hey, that's uh, right off the top. That uh, I speak to who you are. (laughs) Arlen Hamilton, it's about damn time. It's been a pleasure. We'd love to have you on again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate having you.